One goblin, two goblin, red goblin, blue goblin. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone, and I will be your host today. I've got a shorter episode for you this week, but I think we're going to have a lot of fun. This one is all about the goblins of the old world. Specifically, all of the different types of goblins that have been introduced and abandoned in the history of Warhammer Fantasy. I'm going to be honest here and tell you that this episode was entirely inspired by a recent viewing of the movie Labyrinth, which is just pure magic. I love that movie so much. If you've never seen Labyrinth, see Labyrinth. I'm sure most of you have. It's such a classic film. And we have it to thank for today's episode. Before we dive into the history of goblins, I have some hobby and some news to share with you. Hobby-wise, this last week was all about getting ready for my first stream game. We've been doing some War Games Orchard live streaming on YouTube, and it's been going pretty well so far. We're still early days. We're still getting some kinks out. We're still trying some different things, trying to find our best angles and strategies to make as nice and as watchable a program as we can. I was set to play my buddy Patrick in a game of 5th Ed Fantasy this past week, and I did that, and to do that, I had to get a lot of things ready very quickly. And I'm a fairly fast painter, but I also like to paint in short spurts, so my productivity is sometimes good, sometimes bad. And nowadays, between working on this podcast and working on some videos for the YouTube channel... I don't always find that I've got a lot of time to actually do some painting. So I had to throw together some Chaos Warriors very fast. I have a Chaos Warriors army for 5th edition, but I wanted to try out something new. Something that I thought would be maybe a fun wrench to throw in Patrick's plans. And that was an entirely mobile Chaos Warriors army. So no warrior regiments, no marauder regiments. Just Chaos Knights, Chaos Chariots, and Warhounds, and some Dragon Ogres. We're playing at 1,500 points. It made for quite a small army, but it meant that I did have to paint up a unit of dogs and a second chariot in the span of a couple of days. I did an okay job. It was basically just getting them to that point where they look ready. So about 60% done where the base coat's on and there's a wash or two and you've got a few colors on there and they look good from three feet away. That's where I got them to. I got some beautiful old Chaos Hounds in a trade, and my god, those minis are great. And what's more than that, they were new in Blister. And I forgot how much fun it was to just crack into a Blister for Warhammer. There's something kind of magical about that. I think it's the way that people feel about games like Magic the Gathering, you know, when you crack into a a pack of cards. I never really felt that about cards, but I do feel that way about blisters. It was a really cathartic experience. I actually have a bunch of other stuff that I got in that trade that is new in blister, including a whole bunch more of Chaos Hounds. I'm very excited to get them together. And that was kind of the highlight of the whole experience for me, because the game... Oh, the game did not go well, ladies and gentlemen. It was a bit of a damp squib. Maybe a damp squig. 
I feel like a damp squig would be thoroughly unpleasant. So maybe a damp squig. Not to say I didn't have fun. I had a great time. And usually I am used to losing. It doesn't really bother me. But what did kind of bother me is I really wanted to put on a good show for everyone. And I don't feel like I was able to really do that. Though we did all have a good time. The folks who joined us on the live stream chat seemed to have a good time. And I guess that's all you can really ask. I I just wish it was a closer game because I think it would have been more fun to watch. I got thoroughly destroyed. I believe the final score was 15 to 1. And more than that, it was just the most one-sided game that I think Patrick and I have ever played. And of course, it would be our first time on stream. But it is what it is. You can't really factor that in. Patrick was playing his High Elves, which is a force that he has a lot of experience with. And he had some new tricks and things to try out. And they, they all worked perfectly. I also got completely destroyed by my own Chaos Gifts. My Sorcerer disappeared into the Realm of Chaos. Only came back after I had already lost the battle, basically. So I had no magic support for the uh, first few pivotal turns. I lost four of the five Warhounds that I had before the game even started because one of the Chaos Gifts causes D6 Strength 4 hits on an enemy unit unless you roll a 1 on a D6, in which case it hits your own unit. And guess what? It hit my own unit. And the dogs are great, but they don't really have any armor save. So four of the five of them died from that. It was not a game to remember for me. But it was still fun. We had a lot of fun just chatting and uh, talking shop and talking about 5th edition. I'm hoping to get back on the stream soon and uh, perhaps make a better showing of myself. If I'm going to lose on stream, I want to lose a little bit closer than that, maybe. You know, have a little bit of pride. Even still, it is a fun little thing. It's only about an hour and 45 minutes. It didn't take Patrick a ton of time to destroy me. And if you want to watch some 5th Ed on YouTube... That's up on our War Games Orchard channel, as well as a video that I did last week that is part of a series that I've been working on called Lost Units of Warhammer. And in it, I take a look at those units in Warhammer Fantasy and 40k that for whatever reason just didn't stick. Maybe they were only in the game for one or two editions. Maybe they never got models. Maybe they just were non-functional. And perhaps they were just abandoned by Games Workshop. The first episode is already out. That is on the legendarily bad Skink Cold One Riders from 5th edition. The next episode that I'm working on and hope to have out maybe this week, and if not this week, definitely next week, is the Orc Snakebite Boar Boys from Warhammer 40k. They were around in Rogue Trader, 2nd edition, and sort of in 3rd edition, and then were completely forgotten about for the rest of time, despite remaining in the fluff. And that should be a cool little video as well. I aim to keep those videos around 6 to 10 minutes. So not a huge time commitment. And please do check out our YouTube channel if you haven't already. It's called The War Games Orchard. I don't think you'll have trouble finding it. We do have some battle reports on there as well from our live streams. And we've got my videos coming up every now and again as well. So more and more stuff going there. The last thing that I'm going to mention is our Patreon. Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content. I do a bonus episode a month on the Patreon of this podcast, plus whatever other things that I can think of and have time to throw up on there as well. 
this month's Patreon episode is going to be a ranking of the Games Workshop summer campaigns from that golden era of the early aughts that gave us so many memorable campaigns. Things like Dark Shadows, Storm of Chaos, Armageddon, and Eye of Terror. Our Patreon is totally non-tiered, so for a dollar a month, or as much as you feel like contributing, you can get access to all of our bonus stuff. We've been doing this for a little while now, so we're starting to get a good back catalog of Patreon content for anyone who is interested. And if you choose to donate, it really does help us out in terms of paying for this podcast and making us feel real good. So please consider it if you can. Ooh, one last last thing that I'll mention is thank you very much to everyone who listened to our big fat Warhammer quiz last week. It has been our best performing episode to date. Smashed all the records for single day downloads. And I couldn't be more happy with that. It was tons of fun to do. And I'm so glad that people have really responded to it. And we are going to be doing more of those in the future. So please stay tuned for that. We've got all sorts of fun ideas for not only quiz shows out of the Warhammer quiz book, but also community quiz shows and my own stupid game shows that I like to make. Please stay tuned for more of that. I was so happy that so many people seem to really connect with that episode, and we'll be doing more in the future. Now let's talk goblins. Goblins have been part of Warhammer Fantasy, as long as there's been a Warhammer Fantasy. But the types of goblins that have been available to players have changed quite a bit over the years, coming and going seemingly at random, as goblins maybe want to do. In this retrospective, we're not going to look so much at the gameplay and stats of these goblins as much as we will look at the lore of these goblins and think about maybe why some of them stuck in the game whereas others didn't and just kind of celebrate how fun and cool goblins are. Our first look at goblins goes all the way back to first edition fantasy. This is the brilliant mid-80s start to what would become Warhammer, and then eventually 40k, and just everything that has come after that really started from this era. And we'll be looking at the Forces of Fantasy book from that first edition, which unsurprisingly gives us our Forces of Warhammer Fantasy. There was a lot of them back in the day, and they do tend to be fairly generic. For example, humans are divided into things like men of the West, who are knights and live in feudal societies, men of the Orient, which is in this case just feudal Japan, men of the North, who are the Norse, the Vikings, it's all very generic at this point. You do get hints of what's to come, but for the most part, a lot of the human factions are just, here's this historical people, they are now in this fantasy setting. And I get that in the 80s, you kind of had to start that way when you were building this from scratch and ideas that you cribbed from Tolkien. But we do get a lot more creativity when we get to the non-human races, specifically the goblins. The goblins in this book seem to be a real mix of things. And there's some ideas that would stick and there's some ideas that would not stick. Before we get into the goblin races, 
I would just want to tell you about how animosity worked in first edition fantasy, because it's hilarious. Animosity was something that you rolled for, like you would in later eras. And regiments would build up animosity points, which would tell you just how much these goblins hated each other. And the more points they had, the more unruly they would become until they were basically uncontrollable. Now, this is the funny part. Those animosity points would pour it over from game to game. And so certain regiments would hate other regiments so much that you couldn't put them near each other. And some regiments would get to the point where they were almost unplayable because they had too many animosity points. One of the ways that you could deal with this is by, in between games, having your two goblin bosses of those regiments sit down and have a fungus beer and sort it out. And there was a 10% chance of that working. However, if that didn't work, they would have to fight to the death in a duel. And whoever came out of that would survive, of course, and the other one would die and you would have to come up with a new goblin boss for that unit, but it would reset the animosity back down to zero. This is such a cool roleplay element to these armies, and all of the goblins did this, and we're going to talk about there's three goblin armies here. And I really wanted to share that with you because what a cool idea that is, right? Some of these role-playing elements I really wish had stuck, and I understand why they didn't. And the very nature of Warhammer and what Warhammer would become doesn't really lend itself to this kind of thing. But man, it's cool. It's so cool. The first type of goblin we're going to talk about are the Great Goblins. These are the big goblins of the era. There are many different tribes of goblins, and these fall into several broad types. The Great Goblins form one of these groups. They are characterized by their size, large, thick-set faces, and squat bodies. They also ride giant boars, and of course, cannot stand the sight of other goblins. A subspecies of their kind are lesser goblins, which have similar features, but are smaller. Lesser goblins live alongside their larger brethren, usually as slaves or social inferiors. All goblins are naturally evil creatures, who dislike each other almost as much as they hate elves and men. Because of this, goblin armies are sometimes difficult to control, and often the whole course of a battle can depend on the ability of the individual goblin regimental leaders to keep their troops in check. Goblins have always presented a threat to settlements of men, elves, and dwarves. To meet this threat, these so-called goodly peoples sometimes collaborate to purge an area of goblins. Fortunately, goblins are very prolific, and can regain their lost population quickly. Great goblins, the way that they are depicted, have more humanoid-esque features than the goblins that we would come to know from Games Workshop. Their noses are more of... Their noses speak more of human noses than later goblin depictions, and they seem to have some facial hair. Think of an, an old man face on a pointy-eared goblin, and you'll get kind of the picture of what they were going for for great goblins. They look very silly. Great goblins had in their forces warriors, boar riders, and lesser goblins. Lesser goblins were very lesser, being both not as strong nor as tough as the regular goblins and having poorer weapon skill. What's interesting in this early era is that you will find goblins riding both wolves and boars, which is kind of neat. The next goblin of the era is the night goblins. And yep, 
They started in first edition. And really, they haven't changed a whole lot all the way up to the Age of Sigmar. If you'd like more history on Night Goblins, I did an episode with the Crown of Command podcast all about Night Goblin fanatics, and we hit on Night Goblins throughout the eras. That is a fun episode if you want to check that out. I talked poor Josh's ear off for about two hours on the virtues of Night Goblins and fanatics, and we had some fun doing that one. I am going to hit on Night Goblins now as they appear, but we won't be hitting on them too much further because I've already done that and... It's a lot to do it again because Night Goblins are really the star goblins of Warhammer Fantasy. Here is their description in 1st edition. Night Goblins are by far the most common of all goblin races. They are shortish and stooped and have misshapen, leering faces. Some of them are noticeably smaller than others, and these are sometimes called lesser Night Goblins. Both sorts live together, intermix, and interbreed but the lesser goblins are more often found performing the more menial and demeaning tasks in goblin society. Goblins often live in underground warrens, somewhat like dwarf mines, but far cruder. They are relatively safe in these holes, because very few people would dare risk being trapped amongst the dirty and dark stone caverns and passages. Occasionally the goblins organize raiding parties, or may even group together into large armies if they have some kind of specific objective in mind. So we get the start of what would become the Night Goblin. Of course, they're very simple at this point. No squigs at all, though we do get fanatics at, in this early era, though their origin story is much darker than in later eras. But again, check out that fanatic episode on Crown of Command if you want to learn more about that. Night Goblins of this era have warriors, slingers, bowmen, wolf riders, boar riders, fanatics, and lesser warriors. Probably the most fleshed out green skin army of the first edition era. Now we're on to the last of the goblins in first edition, and that is the red goblins. Red goblins are a characteristic tribe of goblin who were bred away from the main goblin stock by evil necromantic wizards in years past. They have little respect for other types of goblin, or anything else for that matter. They are by far the most evil-hearted of their kind. Red goblins still serve the purposes of their wizard creators, although whether these still live is unknown. Red goblins are interesting. They seem to me a little bit more like the Tolkien orcs or goblins in terms of sheer looks. Got a, a, some interesting get-ups in here as well. What I wasn't able to figure out with red goblins is whether or not they are actually red in hue. Or this is just a technical term like the black orcs who are still green, they're just a darker shade of green. The red goblins could give you warriors, wolf riders, and that's about it. Of course, all of these goblin types could take heroes as well, both warrior and wizard. These goblins seem to me like proto-black orcs. And what I mean by that is they're not really stronger or tougher than other goblins, but this idea of a specific species of green skin that was bred for nefarious purposes by an outside race, like the black orcs were, these guys and the great goblins were not going to see past first edition. They kind of get rolled into 
everything else that becomes common goblins in second and subsequent third edition, where the army is known as orcs and goblins. Before we leave first dead, I want to hit on hobgoblins, because hobgoblins, while not being what you would call pure goblinoid, I suppose, they are relatives to the goblins, and I figured this would be a good episode to hit on them as well. Hobgoblins are large, aggressive relatives of the goblin. In fact, the relationship is so close that the two types can interbreed, producing especially large goblin offspring. Hobgoblins are generally more organized and together than other goblins. They are prolific, if crude, metalworkers, producing armor and weapons in great quantities. The hobgoblins are known to manufacture some of the armor and weapons used by other goblins. Hobgoblin shamans can have fierce mutant guard dogs called hobhounds. I love the idea of hobhounds. There's not enough dogs in Warhammer Fantasy in 40k, and hobhounds sound fantastic. In fact, you're really only choosing between two types of things in this hobgoblin list. That is warrior and hobhound. Hobhounds actually were strength three, which is a pretty decent strength in first edition fantasy, where everything was kind of one point lower and a bit about strength four in later editions, if you want to think of it that way. Hobhounds look really cool. I would love to see what that looks like. I'm thinking it's kind of a dog with a goblin face. And if you're trying to picture what that is, if you've ever played Contra 3, and I know I'm reaching here, and I'm sorry if you haven't, but if you've ever played that video game, I think in the first level, there are these dogs that you see in the background and they're chomping on stuff in an overturned garbage can and then they look at you and you realize it's oh it's actually an alien dog and he's got this horrible like alien face but it looks kind of like a goblin face anyway check that out if you want what my picture of a hobhound is so some kind of cool stuff about hobgoblins in first edition they were frenzied and they hated elves dwarves and men so that's really cool the goblins of Warhammer Fantasy 1st Edition are a really motley assortment, and they all look kind of different, which is something that kind of lacks in Warhammer Fantasy. Most goblins and orcs tend to look the same. You don't really get that just utter weirdness of a property like Labyrinth, where all of the goblins are very unique. Some of them have beaks, some of them have mis- I mean, they all have misshapen faces, but they're all very individual in looks. And you get a sense of that in this first edition fantasy. And later on, that will go as Games Workshop starts to develop what would be their goblins. As opposed to these, where most of these things, I am sure, didn't even receive models. They were just, if you had models that kind of looked like this, or you could use certain goblin models, things were a lot more loosey-goosey back in the 80s. As opposed to our new era where everything has a model and everything is expected to be that model when you see it on the table. We're going to leave First Ed and we're going to jump ahead a little bit in time. We're not going to stop in with the other old Hammer editions and that's because what we see is a streamlining of goblins to the point where you have night goblins, hobgoblins, and common goblins for lack of a better word. There are some cool things, like you could have a Hobgoblin Mercenary Company in 3rd Edition to ally with your main force. 
That's very cool. It also established the early fluff of Hobgoblin Khan, who would, of course, make an appearance as a Dogs of War unit later on. Some really, really cool stuff, but not exactly pertaining to our discussion today. Instead, we're going to hit on 4th edition in the start of Hero Hammer, one of the early books of the era, the Orc and Goblin book, because in that book we get our first introduction to the Forest Goblins. By the time 4th edition rolled around, Games Workshop had kind of figured out what they wanted to do with goblins, and goblins all have a similar look that I'm sure we're all familiar with, pointy ears, pointy noses, grinning, evil little faces, and things from the past started to kind of fade away, and they were looking towards the future, and night goblins had really hit their stride by this point. They've got squigs, they've got all of the units kind of supporting squigs, the, the netters, the clubbers, the squig herders, the squig hoppers, and they're a really fully fleshed out race on their own. And it was at this point that they also brought in forest goblins and forest goblin spider riders. Forest goblins have a really neat look and feel to them as well, but it wasn't a range that was going to be supported in a lot of ways, and Games Workshop made some odd choices there. Here is what the 4th edition book has to say regarding forest goblins. The dark forests of the old world are home to many strange and dangerous creatures, including marauding bands of chaos warriors, elusive beastmen, minotaurs, and countless others, even more ancient and hideous. In these gloomy forests also live the forest goblins. Forest goblins are not physically different from other goblins. They are the same size, have the same green skin, and overall it would be hard to tell one from another were it not for their distinctive styles of dress and skin painting. Forest goblins decorate themselves with colorful feathers, often sticking the quills directly into their skin as goblins feel little pain. Different tribes often use different colors and combinations of feathers to identify themselves. Metal ores are quite rare in the forests, so forest goblins trade with other goblin tribes, swapping captives and fungus for ores from the mountains. Because they don't have much metal at their disposal, forest goblins also like to use bones and teeth to make armor, as well as for decoration. Forest goblins wear war paint in broad bands of color over their bodies. Bright red and blue are the most popular colors, and these are commonly applied to make V-shaped chevrons over their face and arms. The forests are full of all kinds of spiders, and forest goblins are experts when it comes to capturing and finding uses for these creatures. Forest goblins even eat certain species of spiders, which they regard as especially succulent and superior to any other kind of flesh. The really gigantic spiders are sometimes captured and used as barter, but mostly these enormous creatures are avoided because they are too dangerous. Smaller spiders, about the size of a horse, are ridden by the goblins and smaller ones are kept as pets. Forest goblin shamans keep small poisonous spiders in their mouths. These bite the goblin on the tongue, so that his body is always saturated with strange and intoxicating poisons. This drives the shaman a bit mad, and makes his tongue swell up and turn a bright color, such as purple or blue, but it also stimulates the part of his brain that controls magic. Forest shamans are the chief figures in the spider cult, which worships the forest spiders as the gods of the forest. 
Forest goblin tribes have totem poles depicting Gork, Mork, and the spider. And this is where they meet before marching to raid human farmsteads or burn some woodcutter's house. Shields and banners often have spiders on them, and spider decorations are common designs for buckles, banner pole tops, and weapons. The forest goblins of this era are very cool. They have a real vibe to them with their feathers and their war paint. They're very colorful, very cheerful looking goblins. And later on in their fluff in 7th and 8th edition, it would play up the spider cult far more. And it would become a lot more prevalent with the introduction of the Arachnorok spider. And their lore would get fleshed out even more. In this era, they have something that they would lose after 4th edition, which is the ability to take forest goblin regiments of just goblins. Unfortunately, forest goblins didn't get you any special rules. They had the exact same stats as goblins, but had less options. So unless you were going for the forest goblin aesthetic and you really liked it, which is totally valid since the forest goblin aesthetic is top-notch, there was really no reason to take them. And unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of reason to take regular goblins as well, because night goblins just had so much more going for them, including the inclusion of things like fanatics in the unit, and the ever-popular Bad Moon banner, which was awesome. The reason you would take standard goblins is... If you wanted to take some goblin war machines, that needed to have regular goblins to unlock them. Stuff like the goblin doom diver, for instance. Unfortunately, there was just no real reason to take forest goblins, unless, of course, you really liked them. They did have the spider riders, who were very cool, goblins on giant spiders. The giant spiders had the distinction of being a strength 4 mount, which was really nice, and... Even the orc boar boys couldn't boast a mount with a strength of four. Their movement of seven wasn't too shabby either. Put them on par with the boar boys, a unit that I really like in both terms of design and maybe gameplay in fourth edition. I haven't tried them, but at nine points per model for a cavalry unit, a admittedly light cavalry unit, I think there might be some play there. They can take bows so it is possible for you to have them as a bit of a harassing unit as well. The other thing that was solidified during this 4th edition era was the idea of the common goblin, just the bog standard goblin. And while this made for a much easier entry, as you didn't have to worry about all these different types of goblins, Games Workshop had already sort of established that goblins adapt to their environments, so the idea of a common goblin was somewhat strange from a lore perspective, but only if you are someone who is super anal retentive about the lore like I am, I'm pretty sure no one else in the world had an issue with this. I will, before we get out of this book though, share with you the common goblin entry as well. Like their big relatives, the orcs, goblins vary in size, although they are typically smaller than orcs and usually smaller than a man. Goblins have quick, nimble fingers and darting eyes. Their teeth are tiny and very pointy. Compared to the large, powerful bodies of the orcs, goblins look thin, scrawny, and gangly. Their voices are much higher pitched than those of the orcs, 
and they are extremely noisy and garrulous, where the orcs are inclined to speak slowly and infrequently. Considering the determined glare and comparison of fangs to be sufficient communication in most situations. Goblins are more intelligent than orcs and love nothing better than trading and bartering with their slow-witted relatives, because they always come out the best. Goblin tribes are partly nomadic. They move about from plain to forest, or along river valleys and in between mountain passes where they buy, sell, or steal things that they can resell to other orcs and goblins later on. Goblin tribes are accompanied by huge caravans of scrap metal, captured monsters in crude wooden cages, or even men, dwarfs, or elves that they have trapped and enslaved. Outriders mounted on huge slavering wolves patrol the area to the tribe's front, probing for enemies and scouting out small settlements that can be raided and pillaged. Some goblins become very wealthy by trading in this way, and the tribe's king becomes exceedingly rich. Goblins like to show off their wealth. A really successful goblin trader wears countless rings, ornamental daggers, swords, and the biggest helmet he can comfortably balance on his head. Others spend their ill-gotten gains on fast chariots, which they race against each other, trying to outdo their rivals by having the fastest or flashiest machine. Goblins can acquire a great variety of weaponry as they travel about, either looted or traded with other orcs and goblins. That's easily one of the better goblin descriptions I think I have read for Games Workshop. Often we hear about how downtrodden the, the goblins are, but this gives us an idea that in their own tribes they can get up to all manner of mischief and seem like they have a pretty good time on the whole. I do really like this description, even if I do take a little bit of issue with Common Goblin. Before we leave 4th edition, I want to check in with our friends, the Hobgoblins, because they have become their own thing, and it's very, very different than that 1st edition fluff. The Hobgoblins would become the servants of the Chaos Dwarfs, and they've gone from hating everyone to being hated by everyone, which is kind of interesting. Here is what the Chaos Dwarf book has to say about them. Hopgoblins are taller than ordinary goblins, though nowhere near as burly as orcs. In fact, their whole appearance is thin and sneaky, with narrow eyes and sneering mouths full of pointy teeth. The Chaos Dwarfs utilize many evil hobgoblins in their armies, but don't really trust them. The Chaos Dwarfs know that the Hobgoblins are despised by other Greenskins, and that they need the protection of the Chaos Dwarfs to survive. The Hobgoblins' claim to fame is that during the Black Orc Uprising against the Chaos Dwarfs, the Black Orcs broke free and rampaged around Tsar Nagrand, and during this rebellion, the Hobgoblins initially sided with the Black Orcs, and helped them fight back against their former masters. The Black Orcs were actually in the process of pushing the Chaos Dwarfs right to the pinnacle of Zarnagrand. The Chaos Dwarfs may have been wiped out by the Black Orcs, had not the Hobgoblins decided to switch sides in return for favor from the Chaos Dwarfs. And the Hobgoblins... Well, they backstabbed the Black Orcs, and because of that, the Chaos Dwarfs and the Hobgoblins were then able to drive the Black Orcs out and into the West. 
the lingering legacy of that betrayal has tainted the hobgoblins in the eyes of the other greenskins, and they are not trusted at all. What's really interesting about the hobgoblins is they are a native race of the Badlands, which is how they first encountered the Chaos Dwarfs and come, came to serve them. But they seem to have this natural almost understanding with the Chaos Dwarfs where both races are very cruel and twisted and take a lot of pleasure in subjugating others. Hobgoblins being more numerous than the Chaos Dwarfs, they have become less of a slave race of the Chaos Dwarfs and more of a partnership. The Chaos Dwarfs certainly on the top, but the Hobgoblins are quite favored. They're not used for menial labor or something like that and anymore. They are part of the armies of the Chaos Dwarfs and they help they help them subjugate the various slaves and captives that the Chaos Dwarfs take. The most famous Hobgoblin unit is, of course, the Sneaky Gits, which is probably one of the best named units in Warhammer Fantasy. A Hobgoblin isn't so different from a regular Goblin, except that they've got an increase in weapon skill to 3 and an increase in leadership to 6. Beside that, there's really not a whole lot that they have going for them over a regular Goblin. They're at that stat line where they're just a little bit below a regular human, but just a little bit above a goblin. One of the things that I wanted to touch on with hobgoblins is their effect on animosity. Chaos Dwarf armies could take other greenskin units, specifically black orcs and regular orc boys. And a fun thing is that hobgoblins would still need to test for animosity in this army, they would use the animosity chart in the same way that or any orc and goblin unit would, but other orc and goblin units that were accompanying an army with hobgoblins would not have to test animosity. They would count as having already passed animosity because these hobgoblins are so untrustworthy that the other greenskin units spend all their time and energy just making sure that they're not going to get stabbed in the back by these awful hobgoblins. So everyone is just cool with everyone else, because they've all got their eyes on the hobgoblins. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant rule. And uh, yeah, if you're someone like me who loves orcs and goblins, but rolls so many ones on animosity tests, thinking about uh, ways that I could include hobgoblins just to mitigate that animosity... Probably easier to just get a bunch of black orc characters, but I still really like how they've made a very lore-friendly rule around animosity there. Alright, we are done with Hero Hammer. Now, we move to 6th edition. The 6th edition Orkin Goblin army book, like all the other army books, lost some options. And what it lost was the Forest Goblins. It wasn't such a big deal in terms of the regular Forest Goblin warriors, as they had no difference in stats from a regular Goblin, and were just Goblins with less options. Very easy to proxy under the common Goblin Regiment of the era. What was unfortunate was that Spider Riders disappeared from the army book and would be added back in 7th edition, when they received the Battle for Skull Pass update that redid the models and made the spiders a lot scarier, but not nearly as funny as those 4th ed 
goblin spider riders looked. In between those times, in White Dwarf, and then later in the 2003 Warhammer Compendium, we got a lovely little section on goblin ecology. And this is a fun little supplement that gave us four new goblin types. Before we get into the goblin types, I want to read the introduction to you because it's really good. For as long as anyone can recollect, the nations of the Warhammer world have been threatened by marauding tribes of orcs and goblins, which inhabit nearly all known regions and habitats in the world. The two general terms, orcs and goblins, include several different subspecies, such as the night goblins that dwell in the mountains and the frenzied savage orcs that cover themselves with barbarous tattoos. Collectively, though, all orcs and goblins are known as greenskins, due to the broad range of greenish skin tones. In general, the enemies of the greenskins do not give much thought to the distinction between the different subspecies of orcs and goblins. After all, an orc is just an orc, and a goblin is just a goblin. However, there are some scholars that find greenskins fascinating and devote their entire lives to studying these goblinoids. Learning and collecting as much information as possible about these green monstrosities. For ages, skeptics have shunned research of goblin ecology, insisting that the information found by such ludicrous scholars is completely pointless. However, in recent times, the research of goblinoid ecology has been used in effective ways, saving lives and even winning battles. Such is the variety of greenskins, though, that scholars will debate for hours on the most minute details of a particular goblinoid. Arguments range from such broad topics as tribal relationships to small details such as the shape of a skull or color pigments of a particular hide. In any event, the information gathered here contains facts about the species that most goblinoid scholars agree on, at least to an extent. This is probably one of my favorite things from this era of White Dwarf and these Warhammer compendiums. First up are the Fire Kobolds. Kobolds are green-skinned goblinoids that are almost completely identical to the common goblin. Only an exceptional expert of goblinoid studies can spot the distinction of their longer arm span and smaller hip bones, which make a kobold's movement somewhat irregular and crooked compared to that of the common goblin. Fire kobolds, on the other hand, are much more recognizable. They are indigenous to the volcanic Red Cloud Mountains that lie south of the Badlands and other volcanic regions around the globe. Although fire kobolds have greenish skin tone, they are covered in large patches of deep red or orange tones. In fact, at first glance they look like goblins which have some sort of horrific skin disease, fungus infestation, or blotches of red war paint covering them. Reports have suggested that these goblinoids spit small wads of fire as a brutal attack and natural defense mechanism, though others have reported that they simply favor the use of flaming arrows. At the same time, fire-based weapons seem to have little or no effect at all on these kobolds, which would suggest that their volcanic environment has had a profound impact on this particular species. Each of these goblin subspecies has a miniature to represent it so we know what they look like and kind of how to paint them if we want to play them on the table. The fire kobold is a regular goblin, but its back, the back of its arms, and the back of its head have all been painted to be reddish with kind of yellowy splotches on them. Fire kobolds were very similar to your standard goblin. They had the same basic stat line, 
but they could spit fire. And this is pretty cool. Fire kobolds may spit tiny streams of fire at their enemies during the shooting phase. This attack counts as a thrown weapon. All spitfire attacks count as fire attacks, of course. <laughs> the attack was just called Spitfire. It had a maximum range of 8 inches, and it was strength 4, which is pretty great. Now, these guys are ballistic skill 3, so not really bad for thrown weapons, especially since you can get such a huge regiment of them. They were also fire resistance. All fire-based attacks, i.e. fireballs, skaven warp fire throwers, dragon breath, etc., suffer a minus 1 strength penalty when rolling to wound fire kobolds. So that's pretty cool. Although they are just goblins, so they're toughness 3, which isn't that hard to wound, but still, for 3 points per model, I would love to play with these guys. Next up is the troglagob. Troglagobs are one of the most unusual types of goblins. They dwell in the sea, making coastal raids against the Empire, Tilly, and even raiding the shores of Ulthuan and Lustria. Recently, many of these ocean-dwelling goblins have been sighted on Albion, in great numbers, in the muddy southern tip of the island that has come to be known as Trogland. Troglagobs can have greenish skin like their goblin cousins, though most tend to reflect a more sea-green tone such as turquoise or a similar blue-green color. The hands and feet of a troglagob are webbed, like that of a frog, making them excellent swimmers with exceptional speed. Troglagobs actually have both gills and lungs, allowing them to breathe comfortably above and below water. However, troglagobs will not venture too far from their aquatic habitat, as they need to refresh themselves at least every few days, otherwise they dry up and die. Aquatic goblins, what a cool idea, I love it. These guys also use that basic goblin frame, but in the picture that it shows us, he's painted a pretty deep blue with uh, grayish highlights, and they cut down his spear to make it into a javelin. And that was kind of one of their big things that the troglagobs could do, is that they could take javelins. They could also take short bows. Their special rules were aquatic, which is what you might expect. They move through aquatic places without penalty. Their other rule was poisoned attacks which is kind of cool. They're almost reminiscent with their short bows and javelins of the skinks of Warhammer Fantasy in the Hero Hammer era. They are a rare unit, however. You can have only 0 to 1 of them for 5 points per mall. Next is the Hill Goblins. South of the Empire, across the shores of Tilly and the Border Princes, lies a barren plain of hills and grasslands at the very edge of the Badlands, it is in this deserted region where the largest goblins can be found, generally reckoned as hill goblins, but also as great goblins. Boy, where did we hear that before? These goblinoids are larger than ordinary goblins, more aggressive and as strong as orcs. The skin tone of a hill goblin is much darker than that of a common goblin, with some shades even resembling that of a black orc's hide. Being much more brutally ambitious than the average goblin, Hill goblins enjoy fighting almost as much as orcs do, and will occasionally sell their services as mercenaries to armies that will put up with them. Wrestling and brawling are favorite leisure activities for these hulking goblins, and they enjoy nothing more than bullying around their smaller goblinoid cousins. The miniature for this one is fun. They've taken an orc boy's hat and stuck it on a goblin head, 
and they've given him two big swords that he's carrying. He looks pretty nasty and definitely a darker hue than a regular goblin. The hill goblins are a core unit, but you can only have one of them, and they are four points per model. Their big thing is that they are toughness four, though you still will have to choose between whether or not you want basic orcs or these hill goblins. The main difference between the two is the orcs have a higher point of leadership and a higher point of weapon skill. However, the goblins are cheaper at the four points per model. They have one interesting special rule called big bullies. Hill goblins are especially nasty and aggressive, and love nothing better than showing off and bullying smaller goblinoids, such as kobolds and night goblins. To represent this, if your army includes any other type of goblins, including hobgoblins, then the hill goblins will fail their animosity tests on a 1 or a 2, rather than just a 1. Note that this rule only applies if your army does not include any orc units. Even hill goblins know their place and will avoid getting into a brawl with an orc. So that could be a really devastating rule, giving you a one-third chance to fail animosity. I hate it, except for the fact that it is null and void if you have orc units in your army. I usually run mixed orcs and goblins, but if you're running just a pure goblin horde, you're probably going to want to avoid hill goblins because they're just not going to do anything all game. Last up is my favorite, although the one that I think maybe missed the mark the most here these are dust goblins and i love them so so much in the deserts of kemri ancient lich priests raise mighty armies of undead warriors for their mummified masters known as the tomb kings in these cursed domains the dead do not rest easy and those that dare venture into the land of the dead are doomed to a life of undeath occasionally a teeming horde of greenskins from the badlands or World Edge Mountains make their way into the realm of death, intent on slaughtering, plundering, and conquering. None have ever succeeded, nor ever returned from the land of the dead, at least not alive. Once the armies of the Tomb Kings destroy the green-skinned interlopers, the Lich Priest summons the rotting goblinoid carcasses back from the grave, adding them to their lord's horrific legions. However, some of these undead goblins somehow find their way back to their homelands, Unlike humans, elves, and dwarfs, an undead goblin corpse retains a small part of its mischievous and unpleasant qualities from its previous malevolent life. These undead goblins, known as dust goblins, still bicker and taunt one another like spiteful children. I love these so much. Now, there's some downsides here. They are a rare unit, and they are 8 points per model which in goblin terms is so much money. Eight points per model goblins in this economy? Come on, guys. Now, they do have a lot of special rules you're getting here. They are armed with hand weapons and blowpipes. Yeah, blowpipes, I know. And you're gonna probably want to take them for, them for the blowpipes because these goblins are weapon skill one and initiative one. Not the greatest in combat. And they have a weird mixture of the undead rules because they are, well, undead, but they're still kind of sentient goblins. It gets weird. So here are their special rules. Dust goblins are unbreakable. If the dust goblins are beaten in combat, they suffer one extra wound for every point they lost the combat by with no saves of any kind allowed. They are immune to psychology. Dust goblins 
are allowed to make charge reactions, which is noted as an exception to the normal undead rules. Dust goblins may make march moves, which is another exception. Dust goblins cause fear, which I think is hilarious. They have the rule dead. Undead goblins cannot be joined by characters. Oh well. And finally, blowpipes. Dust goblins carry small blowpipes and coat their darts with scorpion venom. Honestly, I really am surprised they didn't go with the just stuffing scorpions into the blowpipes and then blowing them at their enemy. I think if this unit had been around in Hero Hammer, that's how it would have gone down. Blowpipes have a range of 12 inches and two times multiple shots. They suffer penalties for long range, moving and shooting, etc. as normal. All shots are resolved with a strength of 3. The issue here, of course, is the terrifyingly short range and the times two multiple shots. If you're firing at anything further than six, you're already on ballistic skill two. And if you go for the times two multiple shots, you're on ballistic skill one, so you're hitting on sixes. And at eight points per model, do you want to have that many goblins that you're just rolling a ton of dice to try and hit things with? I don't know. They've got a lot of good qualities, but I just don't see them doing a whole lot during the game. If I had the parts to make them, I would certainly make a unit and try it out in 6th edition. They are hilarious. The models that they show us here is the classic goblin head, but they've taken a skeleton torso and skeleton arms for this goblin. It works pretty well, honestly, to make this kind of emaciated dead goblin. The whole thing's painted in a very pale green. It's very, very cool. The dust goblins are... Easily my favorite of these variant goblins, but I kind of love each and every one of them for a different reason. I think they're super creative, and I wish this had stuck around for longer, because it's just the type of thing that Greenskins should have, is this incredible diversity and variety in choice. Though I can't complain too much, orcs and goblins were always the beneficiaries of so many units throughout Warhammer's history. Before we move off of our traditional goblins, as we do have one last stop, I do want to share with you a very short scene. This scene has been printed and reprinted in multiple Games Workshop publications, from 4th edition all the way to 8th edition, and it's just this wonderful little scene that kind of paints the picture of goblins so well. For me, at least, and uh, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy the voices. I worked hard on this one. <laughs> Here now, what do you think you're doing? Bellowed the big black orc boss. Furtive goblin faces turned around and flinched instinctively. Nothing, boss. We're just having a bit of grub is all. Whimpered one of the bravest greenskins. Don't give me that. You're up to something. The towering orc looked round suspiciously. Where is Ratgash? You haven't eaten him. There was a shocked silence. Eat Ratgash? The goblin sounded hurt. Eat Ratgash? That's disgusting, boss. He's one of us lads. Besides, squeaked another greenskin. He's all grease and gristle him. Give us all indigestion, he would. Then who's this, then? The black orc pointed a damning claw towards the meal. And none of your lies, or I'll give you something a whole lot worse than indigestion. 
Er, get her, boss. One of Maggot's lot. But he was dead when we found him. The goblin paused a moment. Course, he claimed he was just sleeping. But that lot's all liars, ain't they? The goblins nodded reassuringly on this point. No goblin really trusted another, and with good reason. Hmm. Carry on, then, pronounced the black orc. And you'll save me a leg, if you know what's good for ya. Last, and maybe least, we're going to be looking at another edition to the goblin family that came in 6th edition. And this is the Noblar. The Noblars are the slave-slash-servant race-slash-nuisance to the Ogre Kingdoms. Noblars stand little taller than a man's waist, and are relatives of the common goblins that plague the Old World. These highly unpleasant creatures are possessed of a malicious but limited cunning that entirely fails to make up for their lack of physical strength. Their gnarled bodies are topped with large, bulbous heads, and they have scrawny arms that end in wide and dexterous hands. Despite their slender frames, Noblars have a disproportionate amount of strength in their legs and backs, having been selectively bred for load-bearing by their master's tendency to tread on those who fail to prove themselves useful. The most remarkable feature of a Noblar is probably his massive nose, a massive protuberant lump that can smell an approaching predator before it has the chance to pounce. This is complemented by an acute pair of ears, large triangular appendages that swivel independently at the slightest sound. A Noblar down on his luck will have drooping ears, whereas one ready for a fight will have them perked up expectantly, perhaps to make himself larger and more threatening. However, the Noblars found out long ago that the best way to make themselves look larger and threatening was simply to stand between the legs of a well-fed ogre. Despite the fact that there is very little meat on a Noblar, they are preyed upon by all and sundry. They are often enslaved by Chaos Dwarf raiders, of whom they are deathly afraid, and not without good reason. The most important step in Noblar evolution was the realization that the ogres dwelling in the mountains found them of more use as slaves than sustenance. Before long, a mass exodus of Noblars leaving their homelands in the hills saw the ogre kingdoms infested, with shanty towns springing up in every available nook and cranny. From that day, the Noblars have performed the menial tasks demanded of them by their ogre masters, and in return, the ogres ensure that only a comparatively small percentage of Noblars meet a grisly and unfortunate end. When a Noblar is claimed by an ogre, perhaps after offering a tankard of beer or a dead sibling to a prospective master at exactly the right time, that Noblar is then earmarked. This involves biting off a portion of that Noblar's ear so that the ogre's distinctive bite mark is left as a permanent sign of ownership, far quicker and easier than branding. An earmarked Noblar is automatically above the constant bickering and infighting that plagues his species. The fortunate few dressed in cast-off clothing taken from corpses of the ogre's victims and even accompany their masters into battle, either at their side or in bickering swarms that pelt the enemies with anything sharp that they can get their light-fingered hands on. Varying quite dramatically in size, the larger Noblars tend to be independent, even rebellious at times, and they cannot be thrown nearly as far should the ogre wish to participate in a Noblar hurling contest. Small Noblars are prized not only because they tend to be more subservient, 
but also because they can be strapped to a stout branch and passed over the shoulder, scratching those hard-to-reach places with sharp, scrabbling claws. It is common for an ogre to develop a twisted affection for a prized Noblar servant, boasting to his tribe mates that his Noblar is a good little runner, with a healthy green hide and particularly droopy nose. Unfortunately, the more often a pet Noblar is around his master, the higher chance he will have of being eaten or simply crushed by accident. Almost every ogre has a Noblar to call his own, and they often echo the characteristics of their master. A Noblar belonging to a tyrant will likely be a bullying little tyke with an ill-fitting helmet, whereas one belonging to a lead belcher might have soot-blackened features and a rag in each ear hole. It is possible to tell a lot about an ogre by the Noblars he keeps. The Noblars are an interesting addition to the Goblinoid family. They're more like gremlins from the gremlin movies than I think any other type of goblin is, where they are more naturally malicious and spiteful than your average goblinoid, which is saying something. Also, their ears really echo the classic gremlin look. They're technically part of the greenskin family, though their hides tend to be more grayish and kind of run from grayish green to grayish blue and sometimes just straight grayish, depending on how Games Workshop chooses to show them. Over the years, Games Workshop has given us a wide variety of goblins and goblinoids to play with in their games. Even the bog-standard goblins have a lot of personality and a lot of fun to them. They are never really played seriously and really shouldn't be either. This is a race in the Warhammer fantasy world that exists as a very real threat, but also can provide us with a lot of comic relief in this otherwise very grim setting. I think Games Workshop, when they hit upon what was going to be their version of goblins, made something really special between the night goblins and the forest goblins, and even some of those lesser-lived varieties. There's a lot of great ideas and great execution in design choices. Think of the Night Goblins ranging from 1st edition Warhammer Fantasy all the way into the Age of Sigmar and going strong there with some great models and really interesting lore. That's going to be it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed our little tour of the Goblins of the Warhammer world. Let me know if there are any goblins that you think I missed. I did try to be as thorough as possible on here, but there has been a lot of goblins in Warhammer Fantasy mentioned, both those mentioned and those in-game. If I left off your favorite obscure goblins, please forgive me. That is going to be all for today. Until next time, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of The War Games Orchard. If you like the show, why not support us on Patreon? Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content, and is totally non-tiered, so for whatever donation you'd like, you can have access to all of our bonus content. If Patreon's not your thing, then consider giving us a 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice, and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, check out what's new with the War Games Orchard, or just say hello. You can find us on Facebook. Our community page is the Warhammer Orchard. And while you're there, you can follow our regular page, the Wargames Orchard. 
Outside of Facebook, you can get a hold of us by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com.